Good morning, everybody. Uh, before I begin this morning, I do want to uh, say a big thank you to our elders for stepping in last week at the last moment as we were trying to, I really thought and was confident we were making it back and, and then everything got canceled. And so uh, you, you have the best elders of any church I'm aware of. I mean, hands down, uh, the time I've gotten to spend with them in meetings and hear their heart and to see their spiritual leadership, I just wanted to say to you as a church, um, because I know a lot of other pastors, a lot of their churches, so I can say on like, like we are fortunate and we are blessed as a church to have the elders that we do, and I appreciate them stepping in last week and, and taking over for me in my uh, vacation in Florida that got extended. So I don't want to paint my picture of suffering. I was in Florida on vacation. We're, we're all right. But thank you. Um, I, I know every, churches are kind of like people that every person has a different personality, little quirks, idiosyncrasies, and churches are no different. And if you're here for the first time or maybe the second time or maybe in your life you've been looking for a church, so you know what this feels like to see other churches, you know that they're all different. Like you walk in, they got their own personality, their own kind of corporate spirit, and the Livingstones Church is no different. We're kind of, we have our own flavor, so to speak. And as much as it pains me to say this, I recognize our flavor isn't necessarily for everybody, and I know that. And so what I want to talk about this morning uh, and really in this series as a church are the moving parts of the Living Stones Church. But today especially, I want to talk about something I think is like at the very core, central to the heart of everything else that will come after this. So we're going to talk a lot about mission and vision and, and getting involved in service in the weeks to come. But this morning I kind of want to just talk about this kind of a, a real heart issue that goes to this has to be at the core of our corporate personality as to who we are as a church. I'm pretty sure if I were to go around the room and ask each one of you what, if you want to have a good life, you would all say yes, of course. In fact, you might even want to raise the descriptor up a notch and say, I don't want just a good life. I want a great life, an unbelievably wonderful life. I, I imagine not many, if asked, would respond, eh, I'm kind of more into the mediocre life that has me begging for sweet death in the end. I don't mean, not most of us are in that area. We picture a life that when we come to the end of it, we can say, what a ride. I did it. I got to do everything I wanted to do. I had what I wanted to have. I experienced everything my heart desired. It was a great life. And my guess is the desire to have a great life is universal. We all want that. In fact, I imagine that's why the self-help industry here in America is so big. We spend $11 billion a year on self-improvement books and CDs and seminars and coaching and life stress management programs. It feels like you can't turn around without hitting a life coach somewhere or the latest conference or a book or some online community that will make your life great in whatever area. And listen, I'm not even downing like the self-help industry I get it. We could all use a little help with the self. So if Tony Robbins has something to say that's going to motivate me to put down the Lay's cheddar, cheddar cheese and sour cream bag of potato chips and do something productive, I'm for that. I could use a little motivation and inspiration and helpful techniques. But imagine for a moment that you've decided to invest in an online seminar that has built itself up to be amazing. Like, it is offering you the greatest news you could possibly imagine. And so you hear other people talk about So you sign up, you register, you pay your fee, you download the participant guide, you mark it on your calendar the time the seminar is starting, and you grab your paper and pen for notes, you log on, and then the instructor comes on. And your anticipation is building. You're excited to be a whole new you. And I mean, this seminar is promising a radical revolution in every aspect of your life, your relationships, your money, 
your outlook, your attitude, your behaviors, your life purpose. I mean, this seminar has been really built up. People are talking about it. You're super excited. And then the instructor comes on and he begins. And he begins with a series of questions. He asks, how many of you wish you had a more fulfilling life? And you're sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, like I could definitely use a more fulfilling life than the one I'm living. How many of you wish that you knew what your life purpose was? And you're sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, I totally would like if this job I'm in now is like it. It's got to be something more. How many of you wish that you were making more money? Oh, totally on board with that. How many of you wish that you were healthier? How many of you wish you were more attractive? If this guy teaches me how to grow hair back, I'm, this is going to be the best money I've ever spent. How many of you wish you had greater influence? And so you're fully engaged, totally excited. You're thinking in your mind, if this dude gives me like the eight-step program, I'm going to do every one of those eight steps. And finally, the big moment, the instructor says, okay, well, if you want all of these things, here's what you're going to have to do. So you're leaning in. You're ready to write down everything he says next. He says, I need you to strap yourself in a gurney, and then I want you to mix together sodium theopentol, pancurium bromide, and a little potassium chloride, and put it in a syringe and inject it into your vein. At this point, you're thinking, is this a joke? Because even if it is a joke, it's not even funny. This doesn't make any sense. And the instructor is telling you, yeah, you've got to kill yourself with a concoction that they use for lethal injections for those on death row. And yet, I can't help but wonder what could have possibly been going on in the minds of those who first heard Jesus say things like this. In Luke 9, verse 23 and 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Well, whoever loses their life for me will save it. Or in Luke 14, verse 27, he'll say again, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, I recognize in 2017, we've got over 2,000 years of history where the word cross doesn't have nearly the impact for us as it would have to Jesus' original listeners. We see it now as a symbol of our faith, a sign of our redemption, an important image of our story that God is crazy in love with us and rescued us. But I'm telling you, if you lived 2,000 years ago when Jesus first mentions this, when he talks about bearing a cross, it would strike you in the same way if I got up and said, you need to strap yourself to a gurney or to the electric chair. You'd go, huh? Because they knew the cross was a form of capital punishment, and really not just any form, like one of the most torturous forms of capital punishment invented by the state, the electric chair in the same way. It's just a form of capital punishment. Could you imagine the thought and emotions you would have if somebody bought you an electric chair necklace, which I googled and was not disappointed. They actually have an electric chair. And then I thought, I wonder if they have like a lethal injection Jesus, and I googled that and was not disappointed. They have a lethal injection Jesus. And what's interesting to me is your reaction. Did you hear? I mean, the first service did the same thing, like, oh, my goodness. Like, like, but I think that's the same reaction that would have happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus tells his listeners, you're going to have to carry your cross and bear your own cross. This message series will be hinged together. See what I did there? Um, we're going somewhere with this, but I have to begin here this week with one of the most 
fundamental aspects of our faith. Because great coaches know you can design the fanciest play, the most intricate plays, but if the players don't have the fundamentals down, the play is going to fail. And in the same way, I want to reiterate a fundamental of our faith this morning. So when I say it out loud, listen, you're, I know you're going to go, really? He's been gone for weeks and this is the best he's got? This will not be profound. Like, so you will not walk a, he's a genius. Like, I just want to remind us of something that you already know. And this is important because when Paul writes his letters to the church, you'll see this little phrase often. He'll say, I want to remind you. He'll say that all the time of something he taught or something that he wrote prior. He's just reminding people of this is our faith and this, there, it's the fundamentals, the elementary teachings, so to speak, that we can't lose sight of or everything else that comes later will get messed up. And there are foundational elementary teachings. So that's why the writer of Hebrews chapter 6 could say in verse 1, talking about elementary teachings and principles, say, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ, but in so implying there are some, and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Or in Hebrews 5 verse 12, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So admittedly, what I want to share this morning is, is just a fundamental of our faith. It's basic. It's 101. It's an elementary truth and principle, but we have to get this right or nothing else will matter. And if I might share, when I see a lot of stuff in just churches, like I mean that generally, like universally, especially here in America, the evangelical churches, when I see a lot of stuff in the church today from either a non-loving and judgmental condemnation of other people or to the other side of the prosperity gospel where God wants you to be rich in every particular way, I know that we have forgotten the fundamentals. We're like a football team that's forgotten how to hold the ball properly or a team that has forgotten how the proper techniques of tackling or the mechanics of having a low center of gravity to block the opponent. And this brings us back to Jesus, who if you are following him, that means you've confessed him as Lord. He is your master, that by faith we believe he is the smartest man to ever walk on the face of the earth and thus has something to say to us about how we live life. And if you just read the teachings of Jesus, specifically listening to him talk about life, just the word life, he actually talks about it a lot. And the good news is he has a lot to say. So if you are like me at the beginning answering, I don't want just any life, I want a great life. Jesus wants to give us a great life. In fact, he says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that I have come that they may have life. And not just any, but full life. Some of your translations will say abundant life. And I'm thinking, I'm in. Like, if Jesus is going to teach me how to be and how to have abundant life, then Jesus could be my life coach. And Jesus will talk a lot about eternal life. He'll say things like in John 17, verse 3, now this is eternal life, that, 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 that they know you, the one only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or he'll say in John 5, verse 24 and 25, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. If we're talking life, eternal life, that sounds good to me. And just by way as a reminder, in the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, when it says eternal life, that, that phrase, it doesn't mean what happens when you die. That's typically what we think. Oh, eternal life is when you go to heaven. 
for the Gospel of John, when he talks about eternal life, what he's talking about is a qualitatively different kind of life that begins now and lasts forever. That the essence of who you are will never cease to exist. And there's nothing you could do about that, which is a crazy concept. So if you're into the eternal life business, Jesus, and you could give me the eight steps to that, I'm all in. You could be my eternal life coach or my abundant life coach, my way, truth, and life coach, fine. But here's the deal. Jesus' next teaching is this. The path to this abundant and eternal life, this great life we want, is through death. And immediately, it's halting. That doesn't sound nearly as exciting as the be-all-that-you-can-be inspiring motivational Tony Robbins self-affirming you-can-do-it speeches I could get at a self-help book or a seminar. In fact, I thought I was avoiding death. And now you're telling me that the secret to life is via death. And this should be the point where people jump off of Christianity, that it just isn't for them. And what happens instead is you have pastors and preachers who try to temper the radical nature of this teaching by then selling you on Christianity. It's sort of like a whiteboard presentation of all the reasons why you should become a Christian. If you, be, if you give your life to Jesus, it's going to improve all of your relationships. It's going to save your marriage. It will help you raise your children. It will help you overcome that bad habit. It will fill your life with friendships and community. It will help you train that new puppy you just got. If you just give your life to Jesus... It's like a gigantic sales pitch of all the positive things Jesus has to offer you, which could be yours now for the low, low price of just saying a quick prayer or getting dunked in some water. And then where this really jumps off the rails is when it goes full-blown prosperity gospel, meaning, and God wants you to be rich, and it's a sign of his blessing, and he wants you to live in wealth and to be healthy, and wants you to have nice luxuries, and to live in a mansion, to drive luxury SUVs. God wants you to have all the bling that your heart desires. What is this? It is ultimately turning Christianity into some multi-level marketing scheme that tries to sell people on our religion. It becomes a consumeristic transaction. More on this next week. But I need to remind us of our fundamentals that if you go back and just watch the life of Jesus and all of his teaching, this is the last thing he does. He never promises those things to anyone. And he never tries to sell anyone on the kingdom of God based on a sales pitch of what's in it for them. Not when it comes to life. In fact, listen to another scene in the life of Jesus. He's not a very good salesman. Let me show you this. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus is teaching, and this is what he says. He says, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, is there anything in that statement that's confusing to you? Is it gross? Yeah, it's gross. It's really gross. That cannibalism is what I just talked about there. Verse 54. Whoever eat just in case you missed it, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, just so you know, you're, you're no different in sort of reaction response. Verse 60, he says this. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who could accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, oh, does this offend you? Which the answer is, 
It's gross, Jesus. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one could come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples, look what happens, verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. They just, they walked away. It's too difficult. And so he looks at his 12, he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? It's Peter who says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, if Jesus were smart and he saw those people starting to leave, like he would have quickly pointed out how great their children's ministry was. And he would have highlighted the worship band and how awesome they are and how contemporary they are and how cool the lights are and that fog machine. I bet the pastor zip lines in for a certain, like, it's amazing. If Jesus were smart in regards to selling himself, he could have talked about all the different men's and women's ministries they have and the annual fall festival's a blast. He could have talked about how much fun the teens have in the youth ministry and they do a cool missions trip to Hawaii every year. It's just amazing. He would sell them on group ministry. There's a group for any particular desire. But Jesus, he's kind of a train wreck of a salesperson. It's almost like he doesn't even care about the numbers. So good luck turning that in, the paperwork at the end of the month to the boss. Here's the deal. There is an inherent paradox to our faith, and it is one that is hard. And this might be elementary, this might be basic 101 stuff, but it is hard. Like, this is what should cause people to walk away from Christianity hard. And it's this. We are in perpetual need of reminding ourselves that the very first step of conversion to Jesus is death. The very first step to conversion towards Jesus is death. And there's no way that you could read the Gospels and in the end conclude, I think Jesus' main purpose and goal for my life is my own personal happiness and fulfillment. You just can't. And too many times that's how Christianity gets presented, the path to all of your personal fulfillment and happiness, where Jesus makes it very clear, no, your first task is to die to yourself. So listen to it again. In Luke 9, verse 23 and 24, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake, for me, will save it. Jesus calls us to lay down our life. Just like he lays down his life, he recognizes that entering into the kingdom of God will require a death to self. Jesus puts a premium of this dying to oneself in his teachings. Not God wants you to drive a luxury automobile. But rather, John 12, verse 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And anyone who loves this lot, their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And this is a hard saying. It just is. And I wish I could get around it for all of us. And the earliest followers of Jesus understood it too. They didn't mistake that the first call of conversion was not to get involved in a life group or sign up for a ministry, but rather to put your own self to death. Paul will say it like this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ living in me. And the life that I now live, I 
live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this has to be at the heart of Christianity. And this has to be at the heart of the Living Stones Church. A dying to oneself it is the first and fundamental step of conversion to faith in Jesus. And so when we talk about the idol of self, what do we... What do we mean when we talk about carrying our cross and dying to oneself? Like, seriously, because when you say that, it could be all ethereal, it could seem abstract. Let me suggest that maybe the first task of dying to oneself is simply not allowing the question, how do I feel about it, be our ultimate guide? Like, if I had to just start somewhere, like, if you were starting somewhere in terms of, what does it mean to die to oneself? I would probably say, at least our starting point might be not letting the question, how do I feel about it, be your ultimate guide? And listen, I get it. There are a lot of things that I don't feel like doing. And I'm not opposed to feelings. This is how God knit us together with feelings. So we're not anti-feeling. But I can't imagine a dying to oneself and living for Christ looking like a life where I just really just do what I feel like doing anyhow. And some of us haven't stepped into Jesus' abundant life, life to the full, because we haven't surpassed what we feel like doing. And I don't think Jesus would even be unsympathetic with our feelings or that he can't even empathize with them. If you'll remember, remember when Jesus, before his crucifixion, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? And you remember what he's asking the Father? What he's asking the Father is, would you get me out of this? Like, would you let this cup pass from me? If there's any other plan, like if there's a plan B, that's what I'm for. If I could get out of being crucified, that's what, what, what's happening. He is feeling what would be the natural raw emotions of, I don't want to do that. But what's key is what comes in Luke chapter 22 at the end, verse 42, where Jesus then says this, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's recognizing that I have legitimate feelings that I'm feeling right now, and dying to oneself is saying, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the key. It's the part where we put to death what we feel, what we want to do, what we prefer, and live in what God wants from us. Jesus is our example in this. And the implications of this are profound for us. Like, just give you some examples. Even when it comes to, listen, you had a lot of options this morning. You could have slept in, gone out to brunch, like gone to the beach. It's, it's beautiful out there. Like, even coming to church, if we were honest for a moment, like if I'm even honest with you, like, listen, I'm the pastor of this church. I love you. I love this church. But I have Sunday mornings where I wake up and I think, why am I not driving a bread truck for a living? Like that, I mean, sometimes there's some Sunday mornings I wake up and I think, can I just call in sick? Like, what does that look like? Like, can I just call in? Do I just keep sleeping? And, and the answer is no, because I get a flu shot every year and I haven't been sick in years, but I want to. And it's what comes next. The dying to oneself, overcoming that feeling not letting it drive my life, and instead stepping into what God's will is for me. Or let me tell you another thing, like groups kicked in this past week, some of you are signing up for groups, and I tell you, what happens is oftentimes you get this kind of excitement, to, like you're proud of yourself, I signed up for this, a big step for me, I signed up to get involved in a group, and it's going to last for weeks, and, and there's all sorts of possibilities of way of connection and spiritual growth, but let me give you a warning, because this is what's going to, I promise you, this will happen, I promise. So you're going to meet for many weeks, like maybe it's a Tuesday evening or a Thursday evening, and right now, that sounds like no big deal. But come that Tuesday evening, and you worked hard all day, and the end of the day, you go home, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you got kids, they need fed. Who knew that they need fed the whole time, like 18 years, and it never ends. And you feed them, and then especially when it starts to get a little bit colder out, and it gets darker earlier, those pajama pants, which are amazing. <laughs> and you've been binge-watching that Netflix show, and you can't wait to get to the next episode, because you were up till 3 in the morning the night before, and you want to get like that's 
I, no, listen, I get it. Like, everything in you is going to feel like the last thing you want to do is get back in your car and go to group. That's the feeling you're going to have. I promise you, it's going to happen. The dying to yourself part is what happens next. It's the reminder of why you go and the commitment you have made, not just to your own growth, but to encourage, support, and bless others in the group. And that's what it means on just a basic level of dying to oneself. Can you imagine what your life would look like if in every area it was guided not by your feelings, but by the intentionality of pursuing the will of God in that area of your life? So this week, let me challenge you to be aware of what is driving your behavior. And let me also say, it's no sin to have a thought that pops in your mind. Like when it goes, I do not want to. There's no sin in that. In fact, you have very limited control even what thoughts do pop up in your mind and the feelings that accompany those thoughts. But pay attention to what comes next. What do you actually do? What are your actions saying? And do they betray your momentary feeling and rather reveal you have chosen the will of God? And we all have had the experience of not wanting to do something, and then when you got in the car, you did go to group, and when you came back, you thought, I'm so glad I went. Not only for what happened to you, but what you were able to do because of God's Spirit dwelling in you for somebody else in terms of encouragement. And life is like that. The Christian life is like that. We live in a culture and time that encourages us to think about ourselves all the time. In fact, the entire field of marketing is intended to get you to think about yourself and to want things, products or experiences. That's its entire goal, and it's very effective. Like, you didn't even know that a waffle iron could actually make a waffle that looks like a keyboard. But after that 30-minute infomercial, you can't live without it. Like, I have to have this waffle maker. It makes a keyboard. We focus in America on individual rights and independence and self-fulfillment. It's sort of the air that we breathe in America. It's all about the individual, and you'll hear it in our language. Well, you need to do what makes you happy. You need to focus on yourself. Well, this is my truth. Now, this isn't true in other cultures. If you go to other Eastern cultures, the emphasis is on the whole, to the neglect of the individual. What is best for the whole community, not what leads you to personal fulfillment. And so, just living in America, we're already swimming upstream in this dying to oneself first order of conversion when it comes to following Jesus. And that's why these reminders are so important, because everything else in our world is telling us to think about ourselves. And let me tell you what the most dangerous idol in your life will be. It won't be some stick figure or statue that you bow down to. It, won't, it probably won't be nature. It, listen, the most dangerous idol won't even be money for you. The most dangerous idol in your life is you. It is the idol of self. It is you placing yourself at the center of everything. And when that happens, devastation is soon to follow. You will be at the whim of your every thought, your every feeling, your every impulse. And if you have any sense of self-awareness, you know that's not a good thing. The last thing I need is for every one of my thoughts, feelings, and impulses to be placed in a primary position to become the center. And this is where Jesus steps in and rescues us from ourselves. When he says to die to oneself, what he's saying is, I'm going to dethrone you. You will not be the center. I will be the center. And as the center, Jesus becomes that central command that's in charge of all of our thoughts now and feelings and most importantly, actions. And Jesus will lead us in those things to place the primacy of God's kingdom first. That's why he'll say in Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. 
And I, I, I know none of this was particularly profound. But it is essential that we remind ourselves of this starting point as we move forward in the weeks ahead in this series. Our first task in the Christian life is to die to ourselves. This is Jesus' first call. And this will matter as we talk next week about the pull we have to turn Christianity into a consumeristic religion and how that impacts our lives, our church, the mission of God. But my guess is that this idea of dying to oneself was difficult even for the early church as they continually had to remind themselves that they had been crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless they live for the life that they now lived in the flesh. They had to live in faith in Jesus who loved them and gave his life for them. And so they had to remind each other the cross is the symbol of our faith. It represents our story and the journey of our Savior, Jesus, and he calls us into that same journey. And so early on, they committed that concept to song. In fact, most scholars believe one of the earliest Christian songs or hymns is recorded in the New Testament. You have it. It's in Paul quotes it when he writes a letter to the church in Philippi. It's in Philippians chapter 2. Most scholars think this was a song. And if I had to pick a passage of Scripture that would go along with this series, it is this. Philippians 2 verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray.